as I do, it's been great to meet so many of you this weekend. I've done a lot of talking, a lot more talking than I'm used to doing. So if I ask you for an extra cup of water as I'm talking, please understand. Uh, one of the questions that didn't, uh, wasn't asked of me, although I could feel it bristling underneath the surface, was what's my sports allegiance? <laughs> and uh, so I thought maybe, you know, we'd just start off by putting that to rest. And I have a, theolo- a prepared theological answer for you. You ready? <laughs> Got some backbone, some teeth, so I don't know if you're going to be able to wrestle with me on it. Um, as, I, as I consider, my family and I consider coming to Philadelphia, one of the things I realize is that the Bible tells us that we're to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And I assume that that also means the city's sports teams. So I'm willing to engage theologically with the sports teams of Philadelphia. The second part of that answer is, though, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s. So you have to understand if, I, if I'm kind and gracious towards my old Pittsburgh roots. Um, we're going to start today by talking about George Leonard. And uh, George Leonard was a photographer uh, who, was, who was tasked with doing a photo shoot for Esquire magazine. And the photo shoot was on the mastery of what sports mastery looks like. What does the mastery of an athlete look like? Thanks, John. What does it look like to capture that? Now, we have images, and as he started to research this, we have images that we normally see. The slam dunk with the contorted face or, you know, the, the corkscrewed body that's just taken all of the energy from the ground and whipped through the corkscrew of the body, through the end of the bat, and all of the, you know, strain on the face. But he realized that those are actual moments, very small moments of an athlete's life. And that the, the moments that actually represent mastery are when the athletes are in a calm, meditative state on the court alone, just shooting baskets over and over again, relying on their training so that they can bring mastery to bear in those moments that we often see. And so what George did was something unexpected, an unexpected answer for what mastery of the athlete looks like. His unexpected answer was to take images of those calm, meditative states of some of the greatest athletes of his time. And it was, it was a tremendous thing to look at in Esquire magazine. The same thing is true when we think about humanity. What is it like to master being a human being? What is it like to master? And the answer is also surprising. The answer is that you are most of who you are supposed to be when you rest in what God has done for you. You are most who you're supposed to be when you rest in what God has done for you. And that means that you, uh, that you rest in hope. And by resting in hope, what you do is you hear God's voice despite your enmity with him. But you also, you rest in fullness. And what I mean by that is that you realize that God himself is faithful and loving when you can't be. And the the last point that we'll cover today is that you rest in your right. And I mean by that, that you live out of the moral and spiritual freedom that God gives you as his child. That's what mastery of humanity looks like. And God makes it available. So we're going to talk about that today. Let's go back to our first point, that you rest by hearing God's voice, despite your enmity with him. Verse 5 says this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's an important promise for why we have hope. I'm going to uh, go ahead and explain that. And what we have to consider is, what is the darkness 
that John is writing about? What is it? And we have to go into redemptive history to understand uh, some of the background, to get a full picture of what John is actually saying to us about our hope. Uh, One of the things that we have to understand in redemptive history is the word theocratic. It seems kind of strange to just look at it like this, so I'm going to take a moment and explain it. You know, democratic is of the people, by the people, for the people. Theocratic is of God, by God, for God. And so the unfolding of God's redemptive story is theocratic in nature. And the first section of that, and you've been covering the way that the redemptive story unfolds in your preparation and coming up to Advent. And one of the, the first section of God's unfolding story is theocratic beginnings. It's from the creation and all of the events and the patriarchs and the great stories and the covenant with Abraham and some of the things that you've talked about up until the Exodus. Well, the next stage in redemptive history is theocratic establishment. And that's from the Exodus to the reign of Saul. And some of the mighty things that we, uh, that we celebrate. We've got the Passover during this time. We've got people of, uh, in bondage for 400 years. The people of God in bondage for 400 years, taken out on mighty wings, redeemed from slavery and bondage. And on up to establishing people, finally yearn for a king, and God gave it to them in Saul. And we move on then to theocratic development for the reign of Saul to the reign of Solomon. David's in the middle of there. There are a lot of great, uh, important moments in redemptive history that I'm sure you've covered in the past. And reign of Solomon was looked on by the people of God as the pinnacle. God's king is reigning on earth. God's people are at peace. God himself is dwelling amidst his people. And there is wisdom abounding. But things happen from there that are striking. We move on to theocratic decline from Solomon to exile. And this is where God's people become rebellious. And they forget who he is. And they forget how to rely on him. And they forget what he's done for him and how he's brought them out and delivered them from slavery. And so God, in judgment, disperses them, sends them into exile. From there, we move into theocratic transition. And there's this blank period where the voice of God is silent in the ears of God's people. So from the exile to the coming of Jesus, what's going on? The gospel writers describe it as people sitting in darkness. People sitting in darkness. And what John, the word that John uses for darkness, he specifically means spiritual or moral darkness. Now, what I want to ask is, what is the root of spiritual moral darkness? What's the root of that? The root is no word from God. Silence. Let's look at what Micah has to say in Micah 3, 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you. The thing about this darkness, though, is that it's not just covered at this point over God's people, but it's covered over all humanity. Isaiah 25.7 says this, The covering that casts over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations, that's the same, using the same term of darkness that John is using here to talk about no word from God, that we're not hearing from God at this point. 
Worse, what John later goes on to tell us is that we do not want to hear God's word. In John 8, we read this. Why do you not understand what I say? This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders of all people, the people who are supposed to hear God the most. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. So darkness, silence from God. Israel's hope was to hear God's voice again, despite their enmity with them. They were longing, the scriptures tell us, for the consolation of Israel. They were returned from exile, they rebuilt the temple, but yet there was still Roman rule. There were no prophets declaring God's truth. God was not speaking. The glory of Israel was, once was, was not coming back. What was going on? What do we do in the silence? That's where they were at, and that's who John was writing to. Where in your life do you feel God's silence? The lack of God's word. Where do you feel spiritually or morally dark and disoriented? John tells them of hope. No matter what you feel, the light shines in the darkness. And your darkness, wherever you're at, hasn't overcome. In John 8, Jesus says this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The fuller passage of Isaiah 25 that we looked at before, where darkness is swallowing up the peoples, watch what happens. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has done what? The Lord has spoken. His word has come. That's what John is talking about. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's done what? He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You know, when John the Baptist was born, Zechariah prophesied the reason God broke the silence and spoke to his people. This is what Luke writes. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So we have hope. How does Jesus light up your moral and spiritual darkness in such a way that your darkness cannot overcome his light. How does he do it? What happens there? The gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write about how darkness came down upon Jesus when he was on the cross. Mark writes it this way. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was overcome by the darkness of the Father turning his face away so that the light of life that he gives cannot be overcome by the darkness that you face. There's hope. All right, so we have hope, but we also have next rest in the fullness of what is done by realizing that God himself is faithful and loving even when you can't be. 
Verse, uh, verses 14, 16, and 17, we read this. And we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now why, I want to ask, does John contrast the fullness of grace and truth that came through Jesus with the law that's given through Moses? The focus had shifted, you see. The focus had shifted in the life of God's people. Their relationship with God and his law had shifted from God upholding his covenant himself to the loading up of one another with commandments that they themselves could not carry. God's effort or his people's effort? And this is an important contrast because you're going to be asking, we're going to be asking ourselves this question in just a few moments. God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and a few of the verses there say this, And he said to them, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought in all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against each other. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, God's presence. You remember that God had led Israel out in the uh, pillar of cloud, smoke, right? And a flaming torch, and by night it was fire. That God's presence passed between the pieces, and on that day the Lord, who did it? The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So consider, where's the focus? On God's effort in his covenant. Or on Abraham's effort. God's covenant with Moses and Israel, giving the law through Moses, what what John is talking about right here at Sinai. How does he begin it? I remember worshiping with you a few weeks ago when Steve Smallman was preaching, and he said, you know, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we forget the preface, and the preface is here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's not obey, and then I'll rescue you. It's I've rescued you. And so therefore, here are the commandments. Again, I ask, where does the focus begin with God giving the law? Is it on God's effort or is it on Israel's effort? This is what God says about himself upholding his covenant. In Leviticus, he says this, But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. God's effort or Israel's effort. Deuteronomy says this. The Lord says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Israel's effort or God's effort? God's people lost focus on on God's effort for them on their behalf and switched the focus to their own effort. Matthew, I want want you to see how this plays out in the life of the people at Jesus' time so that you can see this transfer, this switch that's happened. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tap heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Where's the focus? On God's effort or their effort? Again, Jesus said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup 
and the plate. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside might be also clean. Again, whose efforts in focus? Finally, he says, Woe to you, you're hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Uncleanness was an image that said you're unprepared for worshiping God, coming into his presence. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There was a switch, a focus on their effort rather than God's effort, and that brought emptiness. Where is your focus in your life? When you're struggling in your darkness, whatever that may be, do you begin with your effort and where you're at and who you are and what you're doing and what you're not doing and what's been done to you? Is that your starting point as you try to make your way through the darkness? Put it another way. Are you someone who... uh, Are you someone? Are you made someone? Do you have an identity if you put your effort into making sure that others value you? At work, in relationships, in who you're dating. Are you someone? Do you have an identity if you put your effort into controlling things so that things go your way? You know how things should go? They have to go that way. If there's a threat to that, you're challenged. Are you someone if you put your effort into exerting the right power in the right way to make sure that things are influenced to your desired outcome? Are you someone, if you put your effort into keeping your life comfortable and conflict-free, where do you start with your effort or God's effort? What I'm calling us to, myself included, is to rest in fullness by realizing that God himself is faithful and loving when you can't be. Exodus 34, the Lord states who he is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Here, God's love is referring to his covenant love. You know what in covenant means. You have the retreat. You receive 15 new in covenant members. Well, God's covenant with you is that he's gracious and he's faithful and it's true. And that's exactly what John is writing. That in Jesus, that identical grace, that identical mercy... The identical faithfulness and loyalty are expressed for all who believe. Verses 14 and 17. God is faithful and loving. When you can't be, this is fullness of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. In other words, God loving you when you can't be. Here's an example of a bad movie. (laughs) From a bad movie. There is a... um, It was a particularly bad movie a number of years ago. It wasn't great, let me put it that way. It had very bad theology, so I'm not recommending on that level. It was called What Dreams May Come. Uh, It was a Robin Williams movie. And it explored the notion of that uh, Robin Williams' wife got depressed in life and committed suicide. And she went to hell. And she was bound by her own uh, inability. And she was locked into this place. And Robin lived his life, and he was killed in a car crash, and he died as well. And so his search, uh, his character's search, was for his wife, who was captured by her own inability to rescue herself. She was just stuck. 
So, again, bad theology in a movie, but the storyline is that uh, Robin's character journeys across hell, and it's this amazing adventure. And he has a guide that leads him directly to, or he kind of recognized it, but it was startling to him. It was the house that they lived in, but it was ramshackled, and it was sort of turning in on itself, and it was dark, and there was no light and no air. It was just, it was a really terrible place to be. And he was going to go in because he knew that she was in there, and he wanted to rescue her. And his guide said, wait a minute. It's not that easy. If you go in, you're going to take her predicament upon yourself. So he went in, and he almost lost who he was in there. He almost lost who he was, and he stayed as long as he could, and he escaped. And he came out, and he talked with the guide. And the guide said, whoa, you made it out alive. How did you do that? And he said, was it tough? And Robin's character said, yeah, it was unbelievable. I, I would never want to do it again. And... Uh, the guy said, okay, well, I'm sorry that didn't work out. Let's go. And Robin's character said, wait, you don't understand. I mean to go back. I mean to take on her suffering. And I mean to free her. I'm going to do that for her. And he says goodbye, and he does it. This is what God does for us. He rescues us when we can't rescue ourselves. There's a fullness to his rescue that we cannot imitate. We cannot even come close to achieving. And yet he does on our behalf. Jesus demonstrated the faithfulness, the truth of God's word, because he, on the cross, upheld the co- God's covenant to you when you could not. He stayed. He took the judgment that you should have received. And you get the life that he should have had by right. Fullness of truth. That brings us to our third point, that you have to not only rest in your hope and rest in the fullness of what God has done, but you have to rest in your right by living out of the moral and spiritual freedom God gives you as his child. Verses 12 and 13 say this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Why does John focus on giving people the right to become children of God? Why does he lift that up to us? Here's the surprise. The surprise is that one of the aspects of the gospel was that God's covenantal love and faithfulness was going out from among Israel, Gentiles, people from God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, says this, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Isaiah 25, again, we've looked at this, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that cast that is cast over all peoples. The veil is spread over all nations. For the Lord has spoken. When God makes all things new, with a new heavens and a new earth and the city of God, John wrote that this is what would happen. That they will bring into the glory, they will bring into the city the glory and honor of the nations. It's Revelation 21. How has the Lord spoken in a way that spiritual or moral darkness of all nations is removed? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we come to, this helps us to understand passages like Acts 2. It's an interesting place, because in that place the apostles are speaking in the languages 
declaring the truth and grace of God, of the gospel, in different languages. Now, what's interesting about that is that Greek was the language of trade in that day. Everybody spoke it. They could have declared the beauty of what was going on, the fullness of grace and truth in Greek. But they chose to speak it. God chose to reveal it through them hearing their own languages being spoken. Why? Because God was giving them the right himself. He was giving them the right to become children of God. What are the rights of the children of God? What are your rights? What are the rights that you wish were yours if you've been thinking about what it means to be a children of God, a child of God? One is that we have freedom to glorify God in how we live our lives. Freedom to glorify God in how we live our lives. When, um, when you're anxious about a relationship and you're anxious about whether or not that relationship is going to work out, and you're tempted to uh, use sexuality as a means to preserve and try to draw the relationship closer. But you haven't yet married who you're in relationship with. What is the purpose of sexuality in that relationship? Is your use of sexuality in that moment to glorify God? Or is there some other purpose? In the same way, We're freed in our motivations to do things out of a heart renewed by faith. Let's use the same example. Say that you're tempted to use sexuality as a means to draw a relationship closer, to keep it, to make it happen, to make sure it's secure and safe, and you're not yet married. Are you doing that because you're motivated by a heart renewed by faith in the gospel? Are you motivated because you think you need that thing, remember, focus on our effort rather than God's, to be whole as a human being? The gospel frees us in our motivations. But also, there's a freedom to appeal to a standard that's faithful and true. We fail. Our own criteria fail all the time. Have you ever made a wrong decision? Have you ever used bad judgment? God's judgment doesn't do that. And so he gives us his word. It's our standard or authority. You know, we talked about sexuality. Another example is consumerism. You know, how... As a person living in Philadelphia, do I not get washed up into the consumerism that is a part of our culture? How do I not let that define me? Well, what's the purpose of buying things? Is it for God's glory? Or is there some other purpose at work there? What's the motive for buying things? Is it a heart renewed by faith in the gospel? Is there some other motive at work there? What's the standard or criteria that you're using to buy things? Is it in submission to God's authority or standard? Or is there some other internal criteria that you for example. So you can test yourself. How has Jesus made it possible for you to have rights as a child of God? On the cross, he gave his right as a child. The Father turned his face away so that you could have that right. So in summary, first we covered your hope. The key point is that no matter how silent or distant you feel God is, he speaks to you in a way that cannot be overcome even by you. There's hope there. Second, we covered your fullness. The key point is that only God himself upholds his covenantal love and faithfulness on your behalf in Jesus. You cannot, but better yet, you don't have to. And third, we covered covered your right. 
The key point is that when you receive Jesus, when you believe in his name, you are given the right to the moral and spiritual freedom of the children of God. So what are your next steps? What do you do from here? Um, One of the um, things I've been hearing as I've been talking to many of you is that um, we want to learn how to pray. And so that's what I'm going to take a few moments to teach you how to do as next steps. How do you take this hope and this fullness and this right and pray it into your life as you go out into this week and prepare further for the coming of our Lord? Shaping your prayer through the word of truth of John 1, 1 through 18. The first place that you start is you, you think in your mind about what is John teaching us? How do we summarize that? We've done that in a number of ways, but here's another way. You're most when you are when you rest on what God has done on your behalf. You're most, when, you're most you when you have hope and a fullness and a right. Mastery of humanity. God has secured it for you, and you just have to step into it and receive that. So if that's the truth, then the next stop is adoration. How do you adore God based on who he is and what he's done for you? I put it like this. How does God's character show through and what he's done on your behalf. He is loving and faithful when you can't be. He has made the effort to give you an identity so that you won't have to make that effort. Uh, He has given you the right to be his child. What would you tell God in prayer when you realize that this is how your God has been and acted and shown his character for you? As you do that in prayer, you move on to confession. And confession is simply this. What are the ways you've forgotten that God is like this? What are the ways that you've forgotten that God is loving and faithful when you can't be? That his effort is not your effort, that you can rely on his effort and you can cease your own as far as building an identity is concerned. That the right that you have the right to be his child through what he's done and what he's given up. What are the ways you've forgotten that? And as you pray confession and give your heart to God in repentance that way. You can move on to Thanksgiving, and there's often a lot of heat here when you pray. Because in Thanksgiving, you remember first on the cross how how did Jesus go without the Father's love and faithfulness so that you would never have to go without that? How did he lose the rights of being a child so that you could be given them, so that the gates of hell won't prevail against them, so that nothing in heaven and earth can take that away from you, so that you have hope in any darkness that you face? And then the fun part, praying that into your life. Supplication, supply, asking for things. So if this truth were explosively true in your innermost being, what would you be like? Ask God for that. And when you pray for others on your prayer list, consider first how they might also be different if this truth were explosively true in their innermost being. Pray for that for them. Pray for that for your neighbors. Pray for that for your neighborhoods. Pray for that for your city. You see how the truth of this passage can shape your entirety of your prayer in a very informed way. You can begin to pray for one another. Friends, go out today with a hope and a fullness and a right. John has said it's true. Jesus has secured it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can rest in what you 
and on our behalf in the person of your son, Jesus. It gives us rights that we fail to live by. We live instead with an embarrassment of riches that we don't take as our own. Bring out in our hearts joy and thanksgiving and peace and fullness and hope and overwhelming life that we might have an overabundance not only to be able to give to one another, but to give to those in need. That we might be able to represent you well with joy and thanksgiving when we come to those who are in darkness and in great need of your light. That you might send us out as faithful witnesses of our Lord and Savior who has served us so and loved us so. We are grateful that you're coming again, and we're grateful that you've already come. Help us to remember our rights and our privileges and all of the responsibilities that we have in the present in the great response to the grace that we've been shown. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.